Bibles and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 3. Deuteronomy, chapter 3. If you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles, you can find it on page 147. 147. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22. So Deuteronomy 3, verses 1 through 22. Well, on this day, 21 years ago, I was sitting in homeroom of my 5th grade class. We were just getting ready to get started when I noticed that another one of the teachers had come into our room and was whispering something in the ear of mine. Now that in itself was nothing out of the ordinary, but then I, but when I saw this happen, I knew immediately something was wrong because that teacher who had come into our class was clearly crying, and my teacher, Mrs. Alcorn, was clearly shocked by what she was saying to her. Not long after that, she rolled a TV into our room, and yes, TVs had to be kept on carts back then. Uh, and then we, we, we all sat there in shock because we realized that uh, there had been an attack on our country. And so we watched, as, we watched footage as planes were flying into buildings, and we could not imagine what had happened. At the time, I had no idea that there was something called the Pentagon or that there were buildings called the World Trade Towers. But I certainly did after that day. And even though I was only in fifth grade, it was clear to me that this was the sort of thing that was going to define people of my generation. The gravity of the situation was clear to everybody, and for the first time, and maybe the only time while I was in elementary school, there was this eerie silence that just settled over the school until we were dismissed early. Even the lunchroom, no one talked. The world changed that day, and in the weeks and the months that followed, there was this renewed gratitude for freedom, and a sense of patriotism that just swept the nation and kind of bound everybody a little tighter together. And everywhere you started to see slogans and bumper stickers and being posted everywhere of never forget. And to be honest, I don't think I could forget that day even if I wanted to. And I'm sure many of you feel the same way. I bet most of you, if you were old enough to know what was happening, uh, you probably feel the same way. You can probably tell me where you were and what you were doing when you heard the news of the attacks as well. 9-11 is a day worth remembering, not so much just because we were attacked, but because of the acts of bravery and heroism and selfless love that we witnessed in the midst of that tragedy. The memory of those who died in the attacks or in their efforts to protect and save, in trying to save others, that needs to be kept. That's what we remember. That's what I keep with me. Well, this morning, we're looking at another series of events that defined a people for generations. While you probably won't find these two Amorite kings named or mentioned in any kids' Bible story, story Bibles or in most Sunday school lessons, you will find their defeat, the record of this event, uh, described all throughout the Old Testament in places like Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Nehemiah, Amos, and even the Psalms. This was a, a moment which defined a nation. As Moses recounts all that God did for Israel as he brought them up out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, this moment in time was clearly something he knew they needed to remember to prepare them for what lay ahead as they went to receive the land of Canaan. Uh, we're going to see that uh, pretty clearly, especially in what Moses says directly to Joshua uh, at the end of this passage. But um, as we study this together, 
My goal is really to show you why this moment mattered so much for Israel. And then, and, and, and I want to show you why it matters for us now. As we read about how God gave the second king, Og, into Israel's hands, we learn a great deal about our responsibility as followers of Christ to be active in the kingdom work he's set apart for us to do. So let's begin by reading our passage. If you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Once again, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Then we turned and went up by the way, up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. <clears throat> but the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob. The kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Sirion, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan as far as Salica and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. When we took possession of this land at that time, I gave it to the Reubenites and the Gadites, the territory belonging or beginning at Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of Argob, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim. Jair, the, Mas uh, the Manassite, took all the region of Argob, that is, Bashan, as far as the border of, of the Jeshurites and the Maacathites, and called the villages after his own name. Havoth Jair, as it is to this day. To Machir I gave Gilead, and to the Reubenites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of the Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border as far over as the river Jabok, the border of the Ammonites. The Arba also with the Jordan as the border from Chenareth as far as the sea of the Arba, the salt sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock, I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you. 
until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you. And they also occupy the land the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession, which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, last week we were looking at the battle that occurred between Israel and King Siom. And uh, we focused mainly on the way that God rules over the world in his sovereignty in such a way that even though his enemies may rage against him and do what they can to accomplish their own wicked designs, in the end, they only end up accomplishing what God has purposed for them to do. They cannot undo the tapestry of God's glory. God's promises are battle-tested and bulletproof. He always accomplishes what he, will, what he says he will do, and he does better things than we even can imagine ourselves. Although our passage this morning recounts the evil actions taken by a wicked king, Moses' focus shifts a bit from the wicked, really, to consider the actions that God's sovereign design required of his people. The main takeaway that we have from this passage is a set of instructions for how to walk in obedience before a sovereign God. That's really the main idea of what we're looking at. How do we walk in obedience before a sovereign God? By unveiling the inner workings of how God worked in the midst of bringing Israel up to the very doorstep of the promised land, Moses has provided a basis for the people to continue to walk before the Lord in faith and obedience as they go forward, in all confidence that he would, in fact, deliver them to the land that he had said he was going to give them. By extension, as we read this text together, we ourselves receive instruction here in how we are called to walk in obedience to the Lord as we ourselves await the day of Christ's return. So I have three points for you this morning, which are really a set of three instructions for how to walk in obedience to God. So three key things. First, remember what the Lord has done for you. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Second, believe what God has said. Believe God's word. Third, act on God's promises. So three really simple key commands. Remember, believe, and act. These are crucial to walking in obedience before a sovereign God. So let's begin with the first one, remembering what the Lord has done for us. If we are to walk, to walk on the path of obedience to God, which is the path of faith, we must begin with remembrance. After God had defeated King Sihon before the armies of Israel, after he gave his kingdom to them and all his land, they moved on to the realm of Bashan. Og, who was the king of Bashan, had apparently heard the news that his counterpart to the south had been defeated. So he wasted no time in gathering his forces together and coming to battle. 
He came against the Israelites at Edrei, uh, which would have been one of his royal residencies, and he came to push them out. Now, Moses here makes no mention of extending any terms of peace to King Og the way that he did to King Sion. He simply tells us that Og came out against them, and he recalls how the Lord spoke to him, saying, Do not fear him. For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. Now, with the defeat of Sihon, this new generation of Israelites had gotten a taste of what it meant to have the Lord fight for them. They were not swallowed up by their enemies the way their fathers had feared they would be. Instead, the Lord had fought for them, and they had prevailed. God had kept his word. Now, they face a new enemy who's just as fierce and just as dangerous. But as they go into battle, we see that they're able to go against him in confidence because they had learned firsthand what it meant to have the Lord on their side. In the moments leading up to this battle, the Lord speaks to Moses And he tells him not to be afraid of King Og, who was apparently an enormous person. Uh, We have this description of his bed. It's huge. And this is what he says to Moses. I have given him and all his land into your hand. Remember what I did to Sion. Remember how I have made you rich already with the plunder of your enemies. I'm going to do that again. I have given this king, enormous and as fierce as he is, into your hand, just as I did with Sihon. True confidence is born out of experience. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides in the 1850s. It's a series of islands in the Solomon Islands. Now, he took the gospel there to natives, some of whom were cannibals, who had killed missionaries before John Patton. While he was there, he faced many trials, including the sudden loss of his wife and his child months after they had moved there. Still, he persevered, and he got to witness the gospel take root and transform those islands. In the introduction to his autobiography, Patton mentions how he had always resisted writing about his own experiences because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. But the older he got, he realized uh, that he would actually be, he was actually robbing God of his glory by keeping those stories to himself, since the, in reality they were the stories of God's triumphs. And so in his closing remark to the introduction, he says, If it bows any of my readers under as deep and certain a confidence as mine, that in God's hand our breath is and his are all our ways, then my task will not be fruitless in the great day. Patton had a confidence in God's work and in God's hand. And it was a confidence which grew out of the adversity that he faced. As he saw God's hand at work, he learned to humble himself before the Lord. When when you have been through the fire of adversity and you have experienced the hand of God bring you through that adversity, you gain confidence in him for the future. That was the reason that Patton said he decided to share his stories with others so that they in turn could have to share in the confidence he had found as well. How God triumphed and brought light and the gospel into a dark, seemingly impossible place. Well, here, as Israel faced this new threat, 
we see God calling them to confidence. Calling them first and foremost to remember. With the fall of Sion, this, this new generation had tangible evidence of what it meant to see God fight for them. God's faithfulness was not a theory to them. They had witnessed it. As they faced this new king and a new people who were bent on destroying them and trying to upend God's promise to them, the people of Israel did not need to fear. God had delivered them once, and they knew and they trusted that he was going to do it again. Now, the scriptures don't call us to just live in the past, but they do call us to remember. The history of the world is the history of God and his faithfulness. Just as we find Moses reminding the people of everything that had taken place up until this moment uh, to bring them here, so God calls us to remember what he has done so that we may rest in confidence that he has all of this under control. Remembrance is essential to walking the path of obedience to God. In the book of Judges, uh, we're reminded, we have a, really the whole book of Judges, it's just a helpful reminder of what it happens when we fail to remember. In Judges 8, verse 34 in particular, we're told that when the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies, they failed in their love. When Israel failed in their love, they failed in obedience. And so it is with us. Oftentimes the reason we find ourselves falling back into old patterns of sin is because we have forgotten God and we have taken for granted what he has done for us. Forgetfulness, it seems, is really that first step that we take away from God towards other things that compete for our interests, which seem to promise us something more. If we want to walk the path of obedience to God, if we are to walk on this path of faith he has set us on, we must begin with remembrance. When we feel that our soul has been cast down and that our heart is about to break, it is then when we must refresh ourselves with the steadfast love of the Lord that never fails, which has been proved time after time, after time to us. Let us learn to daily tug regularly on that anchor which holds us secure in him, who holds us fast through every storm. Let us learn to praise God for what he has done each and every day so that we may train our hearts to trust him even in the days that are ahead. As Asaph writes in Psalm 77, I cry aloud to, the, to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Deeds, Your way, O oh God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You see how Asaph used the remembrance of God's faithfulness in the past to fuel him now, even as these times were pressing him. Remembrance is key. 
God doesn't tell us everything he is doing here, now, in the present, or in the future. But he does regularly remind us and call us to be reminded of what he has done in the past. Why else do you think Jesus spoke to his disciples in the upper room as he was preparing to go to the cross, telling them, instituting the Lord's Supper, to be done in remembrance of what he was about to do? As he handed them the broken bread and as he passed the wine which he had poured into the cup, he spoke to them about his own body, which he was giving over to be broken for their sin. And he spoke to them about his own blood, which was about to be shed at the cross to establish an eternal covenant of redemption for them. Each time we take that together, we are remembering what he has done for us. And as such, our faith is strengthened for the future because we are proclaiming the Lord's death in joyful anticipation of the day when he will return and make all things right. If we want to walk the path of obedience, let us begin here. Let us never forget. Now the second step that we see here to walking in this path of faith is to believe God's promises. So to remember God's mighty acts, but also to, re- to believe God's promises. If the first step of faith is to remember, then the second step of faith is to believe God in what he says. It, it's one thing to, t- to accept what God has done in the past as true, but it's a whole other thing to actually anchor ourselves in his word. As Og marched his armies to meet the forces of Israel to battle at Edrei, Moses and the people had nothing to fear. They had nothing to fear. Why? Because God told them, I'm with you. I have given Og into your hands. Don't fear. Go into battle. I'm with you. Just as God had hardened the heart of Sihon to deliver him and his people into Israel's hands, we see now he's gathering Og and his forces. Og, as he does this, has no idea he's being gathered to his own doom. Why would a man who sleeps on a bed that big think that he could be defeated? Israelites, on the other hand, had this promise from God that he was going to break the Amorites before them. When we remember the past we are able to have confidence about what God is doing here and now in the present and also in the future. Times that are uncertain are not uncertain to God. And so we can trust Him. But remembering the past and how God has worked for His people then is not quite the same as believing God and trusting Him to work here and now. Who among us has not marveled at stories of of faithful men and women like David and Esther and Ruth and Elijah and Elisha or Abraham or even Sarah? What about Daniel or Moses, Peter and Paul? They trusted God. He delivered them. And we read these stories about about the record of this and we go, wow, what a time to live. And yet, these are, these, there, and there are others, but they and others, we need to understand, they are, a, they are that great cloud of witnesses that the author of Hebrews speaks of, whose life and examples are evidence to us about God's faithfulness. But while it's clear to us about how God's hand was at work in their lives and in the situations they found themselves to be in, we must remember that at that time, it wasn't so clear to them about what God was doing. They had to trust God in his promises. So the things that seem so bedrock to us that we look at and we go, wow! We have to 
take that into the present for ourselves and understand. We may not know what God is doing, but we have to trust Him here and now, just as they had to trust God. It's one thing to remember how God has been faithful to His people in the past. It's another thing to trust that He's going to be faithful to you right now, especially when it looks like your, your commitment to Christ could mean losing your job, or when your doctor tells you that you have cancer. Or when you have received news that the people you love have died. Or when we're caught up in the web of sin and it is facing us and our hearts are rendered asunder. Remembering the past will build our confidence. But it's important to see that God calls us to exercise faith here and now. In these moments and, and in times when, when, when that, are gonna, that stretch us. What that looks like is believing what he says. That means that we take God at his word. We accept that what he says is true, even if we don't feel like it is right now. We reject the lie that Satan would have us to believe, which to say that, well, maybe God delivered you in the past, but he's not going to do it again. Why would he waste time on you? He wouldn't give you another chance. Brothers and sisters, to walk the path of obedience, we must trust the word of God. We must believe him. He has shown us that he does not fail. He has no losses, only victories in his win column. We must trust him just the same as Moses and the people trusted what God said when he told them that he was going to give Og into their hands, just as he had also given Sihon into their hands. Now, don't take it for granted that these Israelites went into battle. More times than not, the Israelites failed to believe God and ran the other way. Here, they, this was a moment that was stretching them and testing their faith, where they had to trust that God was going to do what He said He would do. And we must learn from their example. Trusting God isn't just trusting that He has worked in the past. It's trusting God to work here and, and also in the future. Let me just give you a couple examples from the New Testament about what that looks like. John 11, we're told about a conversation Jesus had with Mary about her brother Lazarus who had died. And, and Jesus comes to Mary as she's grieving and he says to her, your brother will live again. And she said to Jesus, well, yes, Lord, I, I know that he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Now that's faith. Right? Mary had accepted that her brother was not eternally gone. He, she had accepted that one day he would rise again. Mary believed God and she took him at his word. But then Jesus presses her faith a bit more. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Can you imagine? You've just, you're mourning your brother and Jesus is, is pressing you here. And then he brings you to this point of faith and says, Do you believe this? That's hard. It's easy to believe in a future promise that you can't touch. It's much harder to believe in a promise that's right here. Jesus takes a general faith that Mary had in God's promise and then he makes the claim that that hope she's holding on to is found in no one other than him. And then he looks at her and says, Do 
you believe this? What does she say? Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And with that, Jesus walks to the tomb and as a demonstration of his authority, which he has, he broke the bonds of death that were holding Lazarus down and he raised him from the dead. Look at that pattern there. It's, it's the same pattern we've seen already. It starts with remembrance and then it leads to belief, to trust that just as God has always proved himself to be faithful to his word, so he will be faithful here and now. Now, this is also the pattern which led Peter to step out of the boat to meet Jesus as he was walking on the water. Remember how that goes down? He sees the Lord walking in this clear demonstration of divine power. And when he hears Jesus' voice calling out to him, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come out and I'll come. And Jesus says, come. And so he put his foot over the side and went to meet him. That is the pattern of faith. It trusts God not only for what he shows about himself in the past, it trusts God here and now. It believes God and it takes him at his word. So as we look at what Moses is saying about this battle and everything that Israel received after Og and his people were defeated, there really are two important details that stand out here about believing God's promise. First, we see that believing God's promises means understanding and accepting that the power to do this does not come from you, but it comes from him. Look at verse 3. Moses covers the battle. I mean, I, this is, I wish that the Bible had, I'm like, I want to know what the tactics were. Moses covers this in a sentence. So, the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down till he had no survivor left. Now, that's really simple, right? Like, like, it just happens. But you catch that? Moses here makes zero claim that the victory was on the basis of superior tactics or overwhelming firepower. He simply says, God gave him into our hand. The victory went solely to the Lord. This is an important detail. And we see it come up again at the end of our passage in what Moses commands to Joshua. In verse 21, Moses says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that Israel, the armies of Israel have done to these... No, no, no. That the Lord, your God, has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord, your God, who fights for you. At the time when Moses spoke these words, he knew that his days on earth were coming to an end. His word to Joshua and the people was to remember what God had done for them against Sion and Og. But more than that, his charge was to trust God's promise, to carry it with them into this new land, that he was going to do the exact same thing for them there that he had done to bring them to that point. King Og, the, the last of the Rephaim, those fearsome warriors, had proven to be no match for God. And Moses' goal was not simply to give Israel or us a history lesson, but to make sure we understand that the victory was the Lord's. He fights for his people. That's the reason they won. To walk with God, we must trust him. 
And that begins first and foremost by recognizing that He is the one who is accomplishing it all. The second aspect of belief that we see in this passage is that we are called to entrust ourselves to what God says. This is, this is a hard one, maybe harder than you might think, because there's a real difference between believing that God can and believing that He will. Entrusting ourselves to God means accepting what He says about Himself, and it means accepting what He says about us. Moses' commentary on this battle makes it perfectly clear that the victory was God's and God's alone. Israel won because God fought for them. What was it then that caused the armies of Israel to strap on their armor and take the field against Og? Well, first and foremost, we'd have to say that it was they believed what God had said. Not just that he was going to deliver their enemies into their hand, but also that he was able to actually do it. Believing God isn't just affirming that he exists or believing that he is good. Believing God means surrendering yourself to him as your king. Believing God means taking him at his word that what he says is true. As we look at this battle and, and how God worked to give Israel victory in, on the field and then to bless them with this massive inheritance, we gain a bit of insight into the way that we are called to trust God for our salvation. In Ephesians 2, Paul makes it abundantly clear that all of us are born dead in our sins. Therefore, we are incapable of doing anything at all to redeem ourselves in God's sight or to make amends with Him through our own works. Every good thing we would try to do is tainted. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who puts up that ransom we couldn't pay. God is the one who has lovingly redeemed us through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. God is the one who makes us righteous, who looks at us as a perfect judge and says, you are innocent even though you have sinned against me. And the reason you're innocent is because of what Christ has done. Believing the gospel means letting go of any other savior but Christ. It means accepting that what God has declared in the resurrection of His Son is true. That in Him we have redemption. It means forsaking any confidence that we might take in good works or religious rites. And it means co committing ourselves to Him. It means surrendering ourselves to God to cease from our striving and to rest in Christ and in Him alone. The righteousness of God is something that is foreign to us. It's not something we can earn or achieve. It is something which is given to us by God in His gracious love, and we receive it by faith. Israel received their inheritance, not because they deserved it, but because God delighted in giving it to them. Just as they received it through faith, so we also receive the inheritance of heaven through Jesus Christ, who has paid it all, to whom we owe everything, who removes sin stained from us and has made us righteous through faith in Him. To walk the path of obedience to God, we must believe that what He says about us is true. And finally, it brings us to our third point that sees we must act on God's promises. So even though the victory over Og belonged to the Lord, we've, I've beat that horse to death, Israel still had to go on the battle and fight. 
as we look at what Moses has recorded about how Israel received this land on the east side of the Jordan River, he is very careful to make sure that the people understood that they received it from God, but he's equally careful to remind them that faith isn't just believing what God says is true. It's actually faith that, it's belief that takes action. Look, at, look with me there at verses 3 and 4. Moses says, The Lord our God gave Og into your hand. And then he says, And we struck him down until he had no survivor. The key thing to notice here is that when God went to fight for Israel, it didn't mean that he removed responsibility from them to strap on their battle, their armor and to go. God's sovereignty did not remove responsibility from Israel to go, do, and act. Faith in God drove them to obey God. Belief became action, and the result was faith that was rewarded. If we continue through this passage, Moses gives a very thorough report about what happened to all the territories that used to belong to these kings, um, both of them who had come out against Israel. We see they were defeated, and everything they had was given to the people of Israel. This was God's doing, but it was also Israel's doing. The difference is that Israel was responding in faith to what God had said, while God was ultimately the cause and the giver of what they received. When God calls us to trust him, he does not remove responsibility from us. As citizens of his kingdom, we're called to live the way that citizens live. There are responsibilities that we have as a result of his work in us. They are the evidence of his work in us. Those old passions of the flesh which used to rule over us have been replaced with new passions for God which are eager to please him and to do his will. This is a task we've been equipped for by the same grace which saves us. So it's important as we look at this passage to remember what Paul makes very clear in his letters, that we are not saved by works, but that we are saved for works. And that faith seeks to be obedient to Christ because it is born out of a new heart that loves Christ. True faith has arms and legs. It demands action from us. In verses 12 through 20, Moses recounts how the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh received their inheritance before the rest of their brothers because they asked to receive this land which had been captured. And Moses allows them to receive it. It was very good land for cattle and livestock. And as we see here in the passage, Moses knows they have lots of cows. But Moses also grants this request with a requirement a requirement that the fighting men of these tribes would not stay in this land, not be at rest while their brothers were at war, but that they would cross over with them into Canaan, that they would not abandon their brothers but fight alongside them until God gave rest to the land they were receiving as well. As I mentioned before when we were making our way through the book of Joshua, I think that in many ways these tribes chose a lesser portion Uh, that put them in a dangerous position spiritually because it separated them. It literally put physical barriers between them and their brothers and God and the temple. But at the same time, there's something to be said about this display of faith that's going on here. The fighting men of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh had to trust God to take care of their families and their livestock while they were away, fighting in a land that they themselves were not going to receive. When they crossed the river with their fellow Israelites, they were going into a land that was going to test their resolve and which was going to test their obedience. 
While there's plenty to criticize about their decision to ask to receive this land instead of land in Canaan, at the end of the day, I think these tribes do model the sort of faith that we are called to have, a faith which believes God and which acts in obedience to God. True saving faith isn't a faith that simply believes that certain things are true. After all, James tells us that the, de- that the demons believe that there is one God and that they shudder in fear of him. True, saving faith believes God and it acts in obedience to him. You cannot claim to love Christ or to have a saving relationship with him if you're not willing to obey him. You cannot claim to be Christ's subject or to be a child of God if you're living under the mastery of sin. As we look at this picture that Moses has painted for us, we see a very vivid portrait of faith which was composed in confidence in God that resulted in obedience to God. The acts that we're called to do as followers of Christ are are a result first and foremost of his work in us, and these things show that we are in fact new creatures. So the path of discipleship is a road which we are called to walk by faith. It's the same path, the same race that the author of Hebrews describes in chapter 12, where he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. That is the path of obedience to a sovereign God. As we stand this morning in witness of Moses and the nation of Israel who remembered what God had done, trusted God, and went forth, let us resolve to follow that same path, trusting in our Lord and Savior who has secured redemption for us and who has made himself alive to himself and let us walk this path of faith. Let's pray. Lord, there's not a lot of places that we can necessarily celebrate the faithfulness of the nation of Israel, but this is one. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for the way they have modeled the path of obedience, the path of faith. We thank you, Father, that you have have done something that we could not do to rescue us from the domain of darkness and to usher us into the kingdom of your Son. We thank you, Father, that our, our acceptability before you is not on the basis of what we do, but on what he has done. And so we have this sure anchor He is our Lord and our King. But we pray, Father, also that even as we remember what Christ has done for us, that you would strengthen us to live in faith, that we would cling to these truths and what you say. When you say we are righteous before you, I pray that we would cling to that as true and that you would armor us against Satan's lies as he continues to assault us and to make us trust in other things. And even as you protect us in the truth, I pray, Father, that you would also strengthen our hands and our feet, that we would go and do what you have appointed us to do as servants and as humble sons and daughters. 
Father, we pray that you would do this, that even as this week, as we go to our jobs, as we go to our homes, as we, as we relax with our friends and spend time with them, that we would live in these realities and always be on this path of faith, putting aside everything that would, that would ensnare us or be a weight or a burden and running this race you set before us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.